to see you all this morning. I want to invite you to the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, As we continue our study through 1 Corinthians this morning, we'll be in the second chapter. As I mentioned last week, the goal will be to cover approximately one chapter per week for the next uh, 10 or 11 weeks. And then when we hit chapter 15, we will spend 10 weeks in chapter 15, just dealing with the resurrection of the body. And so I I really, that's a a project that I actually have in one of my ministerial classes right now, and so I have to do that. But I wanted to give um, an unfolding of the book of Corinth, the letter to the Corinthians, before we get to that point. It is my belief that Corinthians' main problem is that they have a, a bad view, a, a poor view of bodily resurrection. And when you see the way that they treat their bodies throughout the book of Corinth, Corinthians, from uh, sexual immorality to exalting one man over another man to a number of different things, you see that they, they really had a, a bad view or a poor view of the fact that the body is going to resurrect. It's uh, I think it's probably best said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, where the Lord says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And then it says, And you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. And um, so it says it says it very well there in that passage of Scripture. So my purpose in going through is to really uh, kind of paint a picture of what a poor view of the resurrected body can lead to and how it can lead to a number of different practical problems in the Christian life. And then when we get to chapter number 15, we'll get a a good view of what a proper view, a correct view of what the resurrection of the body is, physical resurrecting of your body from the grave. And, And Lord willing, it will correct some of our theology flaws and then also some of our practical flaws as well. So uh, with that being said, I uh, mentioned this last week, the first four chapters of Corinthians is dealing with division in the church, and division in the church based on um, this idea of this preacher is better than this preacher, or, or this teacher is better than this teacher, and you had, you had four uh, guys who were being, they were not in competition, but the people saw them as being in competition. You had Paul. You had Peter, you had Apollos, and you had Christ. And the people were just comparing them by their physical attributes, which one was a better speaker, which one was more eloquent, which one went deeper. And I think each one of them, as you study Scripture, you'll find that each one of them had a a certain uniqueness to their style of preaching. There was something about Paul that Apollos did not have, and there was something about Apollos that Paul did not have. And we can look at our churches today and we can see that same thing. We can see that amongst our churches where we see preachers who have this gift and preachers who have that gift and preachers who have this gift. And, and really it's all over the charts. You have eloquent, eloquent preachers and you have preachers that just kind of preach hellfire and brimstone and they're just straight to the point. And the issue is, is those guys are not in competition with each other. They're not, a, they're not, they're not competing for, for 
are following. And, and the, the issue is, is when we start to follow men, who do we undermine and who do we usurp? Who are men to follow? Are men to follow men or are men to follow Christ? Is it, is it not all? Is the church not all about Christ? And so in, in, in every situation, whatever you're dealing with, whether you have Paul, Apollos, or, or Peter, or Christ, you have uh, Christ, the, 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 the Son of, of God, is the central um, person in the, in, the, in the flow of things. So we see in chapter number one, as we talked last week, a division is exposed in the church because the congregation is choosing specific leaders based upon physical characteristics or accomplishments. And this is known as sectarianism. So uh, again, Paul, Peter, they all had different characteristics, different styles. And the church was saying, hey, I, I like this guy. And they were connecting themselves to a man instead of connecting themselves to Christ. And that, that's problematic. That's theologically problematic and it's practically pro- problematic. And it leads to an undermining of more important things. When the church's discernment, remember this, when the church's discernment is based upon physical, res, uh, physical characteristics or accomplishments, it is always destined for division. Let me say that again. When a church's discernment is based upon physical attributes or characteristics or accomplishments, it's always leading and destined for division. If you look at a church and you're building a church based upon, I like this guy, or I like this guy, or I like that guy, you're going to end up divided. The only way that you don't end up divided is if Christ is who everybody is looking towards. And you're not looking towards talents, and you're not looking towards abilities, because these are fleshly things. You're not looking at accomplishments either. I'll suggest to you folks that we live in a generation of... Christianity that is built around the Corinthian church of being sectarianism, being sectarian in their theology and in their philosophy. Well, I like this guy better, or I like that guy better. The Bible, uh, the apostle Peter says that, that in the last days they will heap to themselves teachers. You ever, you ever heap something? You guys, you, I, know, I know all you guys know what that's like. I, I will illustrate it this way. Last night, my wife made this amazing nacho meal, one of my favorite meals, and I heaped it on my plate, right? You guys know what that looks like. It's not, not good and not healthy, but I heaped it on my plate. The Bible says in the last days that, teacher, that, that men will have itching ears, Okay, that means they want their ears to be tickled, so they'll, they'll heap to themselves teachers. They'll find teachers to say what they want to hear. They'll find preachers that will say it in a way that they want to hear it. And everything becomes about whom? Everything becomes about them. It's completely about them. Church in the 21st century in America is all about the people sitting in the pews, and it's not about the one who is in the heavens. And this is the issue that, that, that the church of Corinth is dealing with. More importantly than the, than the division that we talked about last week, more important than the division is the way that discerning based upon physical things reflects on Christ. It undermines his sufficiency, meaning that Christ is not all satisfying anymore. 
It's not just Christ that satisfies, but it's Christ and the really good preacher that I love. It's not just Christ that satisfies, but it's, it's Christ and the really good music that our church has. It's not just Christ that satisfies, it's Christ and the great Sunday school program that we have. All of these things compete for attention that is meant to be focused on one person and one person alone, and that is Christ. And the Bible says that Christ is all-satisfying. Matter of fact, listen, folks, if, if he's not all-satisfying, he's not Christ. The Bible tells us in, first, uh, in Matthew 13, in the, in the parables, he says that when you go searching for this pearl of great price, which is a picture of Christ, and you find it, you will sell all that you have and you will go after that pearl. Who is that pearl? It is Christ. Christ is all satisfying. Christ is all fulfilling. Christ is everything. So it undermines this. If, if, if you say that I have to have something in addition to Christ, you are undermining the very sufficiency of Christ to satisfy. And let me say this to you. You're not just undermining the sufficiency of Christ to satisfy in the church, but you're, under, you're undermining the sufficiency of Christ to satisfy in salvation. You undermine the gospel. When you say, the God, when you say that satisfaction is built around the physical and not built around Christ, you have undermined the very gospel that you claim to be saved by. We not only undermine the gospel, this is all coming from chapter number one, if you want to Review it when you go home, if you haven't, weren't here last week. It undermines the sufficiency of Christ. It undermines the power of the cross to forgive. It undermines the power of the cross to forgive. And it undermines the, the grace of God to save. And he looks at, at the end of chapter number one. He's like, God has chosen the weak things, and God has chosen the insignificant things, and God has chosen the, the poor things, and God has chosen the nobodies. The reality of it is this, is, is God's way of choosing people for himself is the opposite of man's way of choosing people. When God chooses, it's like, whoa, why did he choose you? Or maybe a better way of saying that is, why did he choose me? But yet we look at people and we don't choose them because of the same reasons, because of God's grace. Because we just love them unconditionally, because we are showing them favor based upon the goodness of God to us. I'm reminded, I think it's Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Right? Be kind, be forgiving. Why? Even as Christ even as God hath forgiven you in Christ. The foundation of our forgiveness, the foundation of our kindness, the foundation of our grace towards others and our mercy towards others is the fact that we have been shown that same mercy and that same grace. It's funny how we are so divided in the church today over some things that are so, so minimal and small. Do you know how different you think than God thinks? Anybody take a guess? The Bible says that his ways are not our ways. As far as the heavens are from the earth, are his ways from our ways and his thoughts from our thoughts. Do you know how differently we think than he thinks? Do you know what he does with us? 
He wraps those loving arms around us and he cares for us. That's grace. We're different. We're growing, we're learning, we're maturing. But grace says, I love you unmerited. Grace says, I love you undeserving. It undermines the grace of God in salvation. So division in the church is not a small thing. Division in the church is a big thing. And that's why the remainder, really chapter number one, the end of it is all about the gospel. He's dealing with division in the church as relates to the gospel. A divided church reflects a flawed gospel. If the Savior, the cross, and grace cannot unite the church, how in the world can they unite sinners to God? Let me say that again. If the Savior, the cross, and grace cannot unite the church, how in the world will they unite unite sinners to God? That's the gospel. That's what we're preaching to people in the streets. Jesus can unite you to God. Amen? Amen. His sacrifice on the cross forgives your sins. His imputation of his, his, his gifting of his spirit to live within you gives you his righteousness so that you are perfectly in favor with God based totally on the merits of someone else and not your own merits. That's the gospel. Do we show that to other people? Do we show that type of favor based wholly on the merits of Jesus? Do you know what we do? We may as well just get down to where the rubber meets the road. We judge them based upon their own merits. How many of you want to stand before God one day and be judged on your own merits? Hopefully no one will raise their hand. Why do we want that grace from God? that mercy from God, but we are unwilling to show it to other people. That's what unites the church. The Bible says in in, uh, the, the end of chapter number one, a united church is one that focuses on the glorification of Christ as opposed to the glorification of man. Chapter number two is where we'll be at this morning, and we're gonna, I'm going to read it to you here, read it with you in a moment. Chapter number two is the Apostle Paul gives us some means for unifying the church. Or another way of stating it, if you're writing notes, it's the means for unifying the church or the means for avoiding division in the church. We should be considering both of those because there's no perfect church. There are divisions in, in our church. Uh, they, they, they're small, praise God. Amen? There are divisions here, though. And we, you know, we may not even know what they are, but we're just smart enough to know that there are divisions in the church because there are humans here working together, right? So we have to always be working at how can I help, how can I help solve the divisions that might be there, and then how can I avoid division that might be in the future? And that's what the Apostle Paul writes about in chapter number 2. He says this in verse number 1, and, and I... Or another way of saying that is even I, he's going to describe for you what he does. Okay, Some of the things that the Apostle Paul did to avoid what happened in chapter number 1 and chapter number 3, he's now giving to you as an example, he's giving it to me as an example for how we can function and seek to avoid division while, um, while it will still chase after us. Listen, folks, division will chase after the church. 
It will chase the church because Satan knows that division is the undermining of the gospel. Satan knows that division is the undermining of Christ. Satan doesn't necessarily care as much about this group of people meeting in a building. What he cares about is the ones that we represent. And if he can, if he can sow seeds of discord, it's interesting. Um, Proverbs 6, the six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. You know what that seven was? Is he that soweth discord among the brethren. It doesn't mean, I've often said this, it doesn't mean he that divides the brethren, right? Because none of us would ever do that. All we do is we just sow the seed to divide the brethren. There's a difference. When you sow a seed, it doesn't necessarily germinate right away, does it? Might just be a word, a divisive word that you just kind of, I don't know if this is really true or not, but let me just throw it out there and see if it grows. Sowing discord among the brethren divides the church. I think the reason why Solomon used the word sowing discord among the brethren is because he knows that the Christians are, are well-known for sowing things and then running away from them and then coming back and saying, well, I don't know how that happened. Well, it's because you sowed it. And it's distasteful to God. And God doesn't like it. So, Let's get some things. Let's get some. Let's get five things this morning. Five things that the that the apostle Paul tells us are helpful. Let's read the text first. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we part a secret, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom from God. You can underline those words secret and hidden because there's a reason for them. Which God decreed before the ages for his glory or for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they would have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I want you just to paint this picture in your mind. The cross, the, it, what he is saying here is if the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders knew what the cross would accomplish, they would never have crucified Christ. So here's the picture. God has bigger plans than we can imagine. God has a bigger work than we can think about, we can consider, we can even imagine it happening. It's bigger, it's, it's, it's enormous. The things that we would say, Lord, please don't let that happen in my life. The things that we would pray as Jesus did, Lord, let this cup pass from me, may be the very things that God has brought into our world to bring about change and transformation for ourselves and for others around us. 
Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. The natural man does not receive or accept the things that are of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him. They are silliness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so that he might instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I want to look at five things this morning that will help us as we think about division in the church, we think about division in the home, we think about division in in any capacity in which Christ is being represented, okay? Because that's what makes it important. It's not that we not be divided so that we look like great people, but more that we not be divided so that we don't reflect improperly on the one who has saved us. And we don't reflect improperly on the means by which we were saved. Okay? So in other words, how Christ, how Christ um, saved us, the means that he brought salvation to us, ought to be the means by which we bring that same salvation to others. It's forgiveness, sacrifice, grace, all of these things ought to be permeating Christian, the Christian life. And not to be permeating this church right here. Everybody in this church should live in such a way that we are unified. We are unified because of three things. Because number one, we're forgiving people based upon the fact that we've been forgiven. Number two, we are graced people based upon the fact that God has graced us, right? And number three, we are Christ-oriented people based upon what Christ has done for us. Well, that's what unifies us. So let's look at these things very Quickly this morning, give you some thoughts. Number one, the first thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul brings out is that we, we need to reveal a selfless gospel. Okay, and what, what the Apostle Paul does in the first five verses of this, of this passage of Scripture is he shares with the church how he came to them in the original setting. If you go back to Acts chapter number 17 or chapter number 18, you will find the, rec- the record, the biblical record of when the Apostle Paul goes to Corinth. And so what he's doing is, is he's showing them that when he came to them, he came to them in a certain way because he was going to present a gospel to them and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't undermining the gospel that he was presenting to them. So there were certain things about his presentation. There were certain things about his manner of speech there were certain things about what he said that he purposefully, uh, that he had purpose and he, he was um, distinct in doing so that he didn't undermine the message of the gospel. That's why he says at the beginning, even I, 
when I came to you, brothers, when I originally came to you, when I came to you the first time when you were just a bunch of unconverted, unbelieving Corinthians, and you guys remember we talked last week, Corinth was just a wicked place. It was a horrible place to live. Idultery was rampant and adultery was rampant. So he says, here's how I came to you initially. Here's how I presented myself to you so as not to undermine the gospel that I was preaching to you. In other words, he wants to start off on the right foot. If I come to you and I present a gospel to you that's full of pride and it's full of flesh and it's full of accomplishments, and it's full of selfishness, then you become a Christian based upon those things. Are you going to be a unified body or a divided body? What the Apostle Paul knew is how I attract you into the gospel, how I bring you into the Christian life, how I bring you into the faith is going to be significant in how you live out that faith. If I teach you a gospel that's totally selfish and self-centered, you're going to live out a gospel that is selfish and self-centered. It's going to lead to division in the church. So the Apostle Paul says, I came to you in your unconverted state, and I presented a gospel to you that you would believe that would make you a selfless individual. So that when I bring you into the body of Christ through faith, you're not going to be destructive to the body of Christ, but you're going to be helpful to the body of Christ. It is important the attitude that we come with, the words that we speak with when we're sharing the gospel with somebody. If you come to somebody with the gospel, they're unconverted, and you preach with great eloquence, or you share the gospel with them with, with great eloquence of, of human wisdom and, 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 and just intellect, and you're intellectually challenging them, what you're going to do is you're going to bring them into an intellectual salvation, and it's going to cause division. It's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, when I came to you originally in your unconverted state, I came to you with, with absolute total simplicity. Total simplicity. Nothing that would point to you was the basis for your salvation. And therefore, nothing that, sh- that points to us should be the basis for our functioning within the body of Christ. It should be a selfless, in the same way that your salvation was an act of God, sovereignly and graciously bringing you to himself, in the same way that it wasn't about you, but it was totally about him. Salvation is not about how good we are. Salvation is about how good he is. Salvation is an act of God by which he shows himself gracious and merciful to an undeserving people, right? So we're called on to live that out, to, to bring that to other people. And how we bring that to other people is going to be important as to whether or not they receive a um, proper gospel or a flawed gospel. And then how they function within the body of Christ. Remember these things. The means of attraction is also the means of retention. How you get someone or why you get someone to come into the church or to come into the faith, uh, whatever it might be, you're going to have to retain them by those things. And that's why when people go to church, they, they immediately look for something that's exactly like they, they, they love. Because they were brought in under certain human fleshly pretenses. And that's the basis for how they're functioning. 
And then they go to another church, and what do they look for? What do they look for? Fleshly things that they love. Why? Well, because it's about them. It's rare that people come to me and say, Pastor John, we just can't come to your church because you don't preach Jesus. It's rare. It's rare that people come saying, we just don't, we just don't think this church uplifts Christ enough. It's not rare to hear, well, your Sunday school program just really isn't up to par. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rarer to hear your music program is not up to par. These are, these are great programs. I hear that your preaching is not up to par. These are all fleshly things. They're built around us. The gospel is about him. Divided churches often start off on the wrong foot. Conversions through an unbiblical gospel. What you say is inaccurate, whether you talk about good works, baptismal regeneration, sacraments, self-righteousness, a number of other things that we might talk about or, or religious groups might talk about that bring about salvation. You might become a, a faith person based upon the wrong basis of salvation. On top of that, you might become a faith person based upon an unbiblical method. What you said or how you said it or how you presented it in in pride instead of humility. You presented it as selfish instead of selfless. And people come in and they receive a false gospel. Unified churches start on the right foot. They proclaim the testimony of God. That's what he says here. We did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God. He doesn't say that he didn't mean that we did not come proclaiming the testimony of God. He says we did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with a bad attitude. But they came proclaiming the testimony of God. To get started on the right foot, you have to point your fingers all upwards. You are pointing to God. It's all about God. And the Bible says in chapter number one, we read it earlier, that it's all for the glory of God. So that, the gospel is so that, no flesh will ever glory in the presence of God, but those who glory will glory in the Lord. So to start with, the the apostle says, "I I preached God to them. I preached God's judgment to them. I preached God's God's, um, wrath towards sin, God's justice, God's holy character, the law of God, to bring them to a place where they recognize their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. I preached that to them. I preached the testimony of God that's filled throughout the whole Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God will pour out his justice in Romans 1. It says, on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This is not an exaltation of self, but this is an expression of of sinful man and holy God. They needed to hear that. The Apostle Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans writing from Corinth saying this, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And his wrath will be upon us unless we have Christ as our Savior. He unified the church by getting started on the right foot, by making it a God-centered gospel and not a man-centered gospel. He, he, he eliminates man from the good side of the gospel. A, a preacher or a scholar once said this, the only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
He makes man small. The Bible says that God knows how to exalt the, the, how to exalt the humble, and he knows how to humble the exalted. He starts by the gospel is not you. The gospel is him. You are sinful in need of him. He starts off on the right foot proclaiming the testimony of God that's, that's, that's saturating God's word. He is holy and just. He is righteous and pure. He hates sin. With all of his being, he hates sin. And we are sinners. Then he says this. He doesn't stop there. He says, the testimony of God. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we start off with God's testimony, and then we move to the testimony of Christ. And his sacrifice for our sins and the fact that he is the means by which we can avoid the wrath of God by placing ourselves in Christ. Who embrace, listen to me, we can put ourselves in Christ by faith who embrace the wrath of God for us. This is what Isaiah 53 says, that he bore our sins in his own body. And we can become hidden, the Bible says, in him. We can hide in Christ. Folks, literally the only way that mankind will avoid the wrath of God from being poured out upon them for eternity is by being hidden in Christ. But listen, the offer to be hidden in Christ is a free gift. It has nothing to do with our merits, our deserving. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift. All you do is receive it. All you do is receive it. It's a free gift. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, for, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Knowing nothing but the crucifixion of Christ. This, what, this is how Paul comes to these, new, these unconverted people. And then the last thing he says is the demonstration of the Spirit and the power. This is the Holy Spirit. And this is not about communicating. He communicated the testimony of Christ. He communicated the, the testimony of God. He doesn't communicate the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what he does? When he comes to these people, you know what he does with the power of the Holy Spirit? He shows it to them. It's no longer, it's no longer tell this is now show and tell. It's not just about what they know intellectually. It's now, it's now about who lives inside of them, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. He demonstrates to them the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He demonstrates, he shows them that there is victory to be had. A friend of mine once asked me the question, he said, Pastor John, he says, I have a, a lot of family members and they're all unsaved. And he's like, I just don't know how to reach them. So I said to this man, I said, I said, sir, and I called him by name. I said, tell me what your greatest sin is. And he said, well, my greatest sin is, is anger. And I said, let me ask you this question. Does everybody around you know that your greatest sin is anger? And he says, yes. And, and anger is one of those sins that everybody around you knows, right? He said, yes. Everybody that I, I like, everybody that wants to see Want, you want to share with them how to get saved? Everybody knows that you're an angry person. He's like, yes, everyone. I said, here's how you share the gospel with them. You win by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
over your anger, and they will ask you what the gospel is. They will inquire from you what the gospel is because they will want to know the power of the spirit that is within you. He demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. He avoids anything that points to self, like lofty speech, which means uh, excellent, superior, or authoritative speech. He avoids wisdom, which is intellectual knowledge. He avoids plausible words, which means enticing or persuasive. The Apostle Paul is moving away from anything and everything that would promote the flesh in a person's salvation. Why? Because it's not about the flesh. Then he says that he came to them identifying several of his own weaknesses. He was fearful. He came with much trembling. What's he doing? He's showing them how weak he was. He ex- exhibiting to them what it means to be a Christian. Spiritual wisdom rests so that their wisdom, the, the end of verse 5, so that their faith might rest on God, the power of God, and not on the wisdom of men. And the word rest here just means exist. It means the basis of the existence of your faith. The basis of the existence of your faith is not on intellect. The basis of the existence of your faith is not on man-centeredness. The basis of the existence of your faith is the power of God. The basis of the existence of your faith is the power of God. That's what he means. So the first thing is we've got to start off on the right foot. We've got to present the right gospel with our mouths. We've got to manifest the right gospel with our lives. It's not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. Everything about the gospel in the initial phases of bringing someone into the faith is going to be foundational to how they live out their faith. And I will suggest to you this morning that we have a lot of people in our world today that call themselves people of faith, even call themselves Christians, but they have a real, real, unbiblical view of what it means to be a Christian. Real unbiblical. Meaning there's no humility, there's no emptiness of self, there's no dependence on Christ and the Holy Spirit. There's no brokenness and kindness towards others. These things are lacking. So start off on the right foot. Number two, recognize the flawed intellect. Recognize that the intellect in these situations, knowledge is the word here, or, or wisdom, which is the implication is um, human wisdom. Uh, things that we learn about and study, kind of mental things. Recognize, if you're going to be unified in the church, Start off on the right foot, and number two, recognize the flaws in the intellect. Okay, here's what he says. Let's read it together. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart impart a secret and a hidden wisdom, a secret and a hidden, hidden wisdom from God, which he decreed before the Uh, ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. None of the significant people of the age, none of the intellectuals of the age could understand these things. 
They were hidden to them or hidden from them or they would not have um, crucified Christ. A second help in the divided church is to recognize and admit that the that, that the, the flaws that there are spiritual flaws to the intellect. The most divided churches differing, uh, differing, the most divided churches differing ideas about, differ on ideas about how things should be done and why things should be done. We want to remember these things. The intellect is helpless to finding spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is not modern wisdom. It says that here. Not the wisdom of the day. Meaning it's not the modern wisdom of the day. It's not a changing wisdom. It doesn't change with the culture. It doesn't change with what generation you live in. It doesn't change with the era that we live in. Spiritual wisdom is unchanging. It's not modern wisdom. Not only is it not modern wisdom, it's not intellectual wisdom. He goes on to say it's not the wisdom of the day, nor is, the wisdom, nor is it the wisdom of the intellectuals or the important people of the day. In our world today, we have a lot of people that view themselves as important. They have a lot of uh, uh, um, letters behind their name, if you know what I mean. They view themselves as being very important. And you know what they say about Christians? They say Christians are ignorant. Christians are foolish. Christians are simple. Christians are, are all of these different things that they refer to. My wife was sharing a, an article with me this morning about the world's view of Christianity and Christians. Spiritual wisdom is not intellectual wisdom. Intellectual wisdom is divisive. Spiritual wisdom is unifying. Spiritual wisdom is secret. It means it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Spiritual wisdom is a mystery. Spiritual wisdom is hidden, which means it is, the word literally comes from the Greek word that we get the word encrypted from. It is an encrypted wisdom. It's not found by the natural mind or the natural eyes. Spiritual wisdom is hidden from the intellect, and it's hidden from the intellect purposefully because the intellect leads to pride. Let's read. Out of Matthew 13 and verse 17, it says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Rome, or 1 Corinthians 8, 1, the Bible says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Many of the divisions in the church are just based upon different people's ideas about different things. I'd like to see it done this way, or I'd like to see this color or that color. And a lot of times you don't find at the basis of division in the church really strong biblical fundamental things. You find problems with people's perspectives on how things ought to be done. And it creates division. And the Apostle Paul is saying that you need to go, you have to go away from your intellectual knowledge. You have to understand the flaws of it and lean in on something else. The intellect is helpless in finding spiritual wisdom. The intellect is a hindrance or can be a hindrance to finding spiritual wisdom. Notice this. The Bible says, what no eye hath seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 
In other words, you can, everything that he mentions is about physical intellect, isn't it? The things that you see, the things that you hear, and the imaginations of your mind. He says this, all of those things cannot even come close to reaching what God has prepared for you. And many times we can limit what God is doing based upon the fact that we base it on what we can see, hear, and imagine. What if God has bigger things prepared? And we go to James 4, it says, you have not because you ask not. And you would never ask for God something that you cannot see, hear, or imagine. The intellect can often be a hindrance. Human intellect, fleshly intellect, can often be a hindrance to finding spiritual wisdom. May I suggest to you that we live in a generation of people that lean on fleshly wisdom for almost everything. And we can never imagine anything happening beyond that fleshly wisdom. What we can see, what we can hear, and what we can imagine. Folks, listen, God's bigger. He's way bigger than our intellect and our imagination. Searching searching spiritual wisdom by intellect is flawed because spiritual wisdom is beyond the intellect. Eye hath not seen it, ear hath not heard it, it has not entered into the heart or to the imagination of men what God hath prepared for them. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and I will show thee great and hidden things that you have not known. You want to see those things? You want to see those things? You got to believe beyond what you can know. You got to believe beyond your intellect. It divides too. It's divisive. The intellect sees spiritual wisdom as folly and silliness. And we see that here in our text again. It says that they see it as folly. The natural man sees spiritual wisdom as folly. If you desire to know spiritual wisdom and you trust an intellect to discover it, you will miss the best of what God plans for you. Number three. Number three, here's where we get to how we can have this unity based upon having spiritual wisdom. Number three, read the inspired word. He says that God hath revealed, he says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice two things here. He says that he's decreed it before the ages, which is no beginning. Before time began, God decreed the word, and he's decreed it for our glory, which is the end of time, meaning that the word of God exceeds time. It is eternal. He says... He says in verse number 13, and we impart this wisdom in words, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This also is the Word of God. Spiritual wisdom is revealed through the inspired Word. The Bible is the only source of unifying information. Extra-biblical, extra-biblical um, issues are either less important or not important, And extra-biblical issues are solved by biblical principles. There are issues in your life that you can't go to a verse and find, thus saith the Lord, aren't there? May I submit to you that there are ways 
and there are orders and there are structures and there are hierarchies that God has set up so that when you face an issue that you don't have a thus saith the Lord, you have a way to still remain united. Because being united is what matters. The gospel is undermined by division. Taught to us in words, verse number 13, inspired by God, God breathed. Spoken by God, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture has been breathed out by God. All scripture has been breathed out by God. We have have a message in which if we center our focus on it, if every individual centers their focus on this message, there's unity. Someone once said to me, we were wrestling about, or not wrestling, but just talking about um, versions of the Bible, different versions, and which version is this, and what about this version? I said, listen, and, I, and I, have my, I have my views on that, but I just said, I said, listen, if you'll read the Bible and do what it says, you won't have time to worry about some of those other deeper things. I think sometimes we wrestle about some of these things and argue and debate and we fight, and we're not doing anything that's in any of the versions, I think we need to open up God's word again and seek to know what his will is. To seek to know what he desires of us. To gather the information by which we can have true spiritual wisdom. Unifying wisdom. There is a, there's got to be a central focus in order for there to be unity. And it has to be the word of God. It's the only source of that information. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all, its, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. The Bible is our only source of information that we can have to have spiritual wisdom. Let me say this to you. The Bible is not the end game. The Bible is a means a source of information that leads to us having spiritual wisdom. There are a lot of people who read the Bible who have zero spiritual wisdom. The Bible is not the end game. The Bible is the only source by which which we reach the end game. So, So when you're reading the Bible, you're gathering information in your mind that's going to lead to spiritual wisdom. But it's not spiritual wisdom on its own. Does that make sense? There's something that has to be added to it for it to be spiritual wisdom. And what is that? It's the Spirit of God. It's not enough just to read the Word of God. Many, listen, (laughs) the world is full of religions that read the Bible and divide. It's not enough just to read the word of God. It is to have the spirit of God guiding you when you read the word of God. It's to be a spiritually minded person. You see, the devil has done everything in his power to take us away from being spiritually minded so that when we read the word of God, it's just like a historical book. What we need to do before we read the word of God is be spiritually minded. The word of God will make sense. Listen, two people can read the same verse and come up with two opposing opinions. Very opposing opinions on basic things. What you need to unify is you need the Spirit of God to be the teacher. 
This is why he says, he says it really over and over again. He says in verse 6, Yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of the age or the wisdom of the rulers of the age, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. And down in verse number 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the thoughts except the spirit of a man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So who understands God's thoughts? Who understands God's thoughts? Do any of us understand God's thoughts? Only the spirit of God understands God's thoughts. So when we read the word of God with our own intellect in as the basis of our discerning of what the word of God is saying, we will literally miss the very purpose for which God spoke the words that he spoke. We must be taught the word of God by the spirit of God. Remember when the disciples, the disciples were constantly debating with the Lord about his crucifixion and about his teachings, and, and the Lord says to them, listen, you will understand in time. Why does the Lord say to his disciples, you will understand in time? What was, what was lacking that they were getting ready to get? The Spirit of God. They were going to have the Spirit of God. He was going to be their teacher. He was going to guide them to understand all things that he has taught them. This is John 14 tells us that. We must receive, this is number four, receive the all-knowing Spirit. Spiritual wisdom is received in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of man knows man. The Spirit of God knows God. The Spirit of God searches everything. The Spirit of God searches the deep things of God. He searches the, he searches the, the depths of God. He knows God because he is God. The Word provides the information. The, the Spirit takes the information and he makes it alive within us. Listen to what James 1 verse 5 says. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given him. And then Luke eleven thirteen says this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him for it? It's not a, listen, the word of God is outside of us. It's not an intellectual thing, it's a spiritual thing, it's outside of us. The spirit of God is inside of us, but he is alien to us. He hasn't given us wisdom, he's given us himself. And he has come into us with all wisdom. So it has to be the word of God studied, for information, the Spirit of God preparing and teaching and instructing. And then the last thought is this. Listen to what he says in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. In other words, somebody who is in the Spirit is not going to be judged by anybody, but yet he's going to be discerning himself of all things. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? Notice the strong words here. 
Who has an intellect about the Lord so strongly that they can instruct the Lord? I think some of us would have to look at our prayer lives and we would say, you know something, I feel like I'm instructing the Lord more than I'm surrendering to him. I feel like I'm telling the Lord what to do in every situation of my life and not asking him what to do. Who's the servant here? Who's the master? Who's the one who has the ability to change things? Who knows what tomorrow holds? Who knows God's mind so well that they can instruct him on what to do? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is a given answer. It's ungiven in here, but it's like so obvious that it's given. It's no one. No one has an understanding. No one has an intellect. No one has a depth of things in their own mind that makes them capable of instructing the Lord. Amen? But, listen, we have the mind of Christ. You see, here's the issue. Unity comes not when we have great understanding. Unity comes when we have great submission. Unity comes when we submit to a mind that is not our own, but yet lives within us. It's when we surrender our thinking to his thinking. It's not when we make his thinking our thinking, because then it becomes about whom? It becomes about us. It's when we realize that we have a mind in us that's not ours. And we learn to submit to his mind and his will, knowing that it's often contrary to ours. And may I submit to you this morning that when we get to a place where we think we know God in our own intellect well, we get the attitude that he mentions here that, that we believe we can instruct God. And there's nothing more, advice, nothing more divisive than that attitude. The last thought is rest in Christ's mind. Spiritual wisdom is not comprehended by the intellect. Intellect views spiritual wisdom as silly and foolish. Intellect cannot understand spiritual wisdom because the Bible says it's spiritual. But the spiritual judges all things. And the key to this is spiritual wisdom is viewing everything spiritually. We must view everything as spiritually. The Bible tells us in closing, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, you're familiar with it. It says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say change your mind to fit his mind. It says, let his mind rule in you. Let his mind be dominant in you. Let his mind be in control of you. It is an issue of surrender. It is an issue of submission. The Bible says in Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewed mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It is his mind in us that causes us to have true spiritual wisdom. True lasting unity comes when the church teaches and lives a gospel of sacrifice, forgiveness, and grace when we acknowledge the futility of our own intellect and when we read 
and meditate on the word, receive the Holy Spirit by faith and submit to his mind, which he graciously gives to us. We must learn to discipline our minds to submit to his. And this is why the New Testament deals comprehensively with the idea of dying to yourself. Mortifying the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, put to death the thinking of the flesh, because in the end, it is all about submitting to God. So as we think about ways that we can avoid division in the church, ways that we can, we can heal division in the church, we've got to remember these five things. Start off on the right foot. Understand your intellect is not going to be the basis of it. If you're Bill, I mean, honestly, if you look at any division in the church, oftentimes intellect is the source of it. I know better. I think this should happen. I think that should happen. Well, that's great. It cannot be the basis of unity. And then know this, Christ's mind, through his word, in you, taught by his spirit, is what unifies and it is what glorifies us well. So let's consider these things this morning. Let's close. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. Help us, Lord, to embrace your mind in us, to die to ourselves, to put and mortify the deeds of the flesh, to say no to our own thinking and yes to yours, to be submissive, to be surrendered, to be humble, to be um, unifying in all that we do. Help us to be able to put self aside forever and put you in your rightful place as Lord. Please help us this morning. Be with us as we go home. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen.